So my sermon today is entitled, if I can get this to work, Believe in God. What does it mean to believe in God? This is perhaps the most important question that we can ask as Christians in our lives. What does it mean to believe? You see, there's a kind of knowledge that we all have that is impersonal and vague. It is the knowledge that even the demons know. The demons know that God exists. The devil knows because he was in heaven. God exists. But do they believe in a saving way like we do? Even though they know that God exists, they do not believe in him in a saving way. So, Christians, our belief is quite different from what the demons believe or what those who do not know God believe. Ours is different because Christians believe that God both exists and is worthy of praise and worship. We believe that God revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the Jesus Christ who died and was risen and is risen from the dead. We know Jesus as Lord and Savior who loves us and has died so that he can make us inheritors of the kingdom to come or of the life to come. To know God is to believe in his um, son and in his gospel. All of us must ask ourselves, do we believe in Jesus Christ and do we know God? There is no more important question than this in a Christian life. What do you believe? Or what do I believe? In the book of First uh, Peter, chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, it says, He was chosen from the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake and for my sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. My faith and your faith and my hope and your hope are in God. So when I was doing this, um, you know, we do talk about belief, beliefs. The two words go synonymously. Um, What is it? What does it mean to believe? And like anybody else, you know, I did... uh, In the olden days, you'd have your dictionary in the house, but nowadays you have the online one. So I did a little research and to find out what does these different dictionaries that we know about, what do they talk about the word believe? And I looked online and I looked on the Cambridge Dictionary, which states, belief is to think that something is true, correct, and real, If you believe in something, you feel it is right. If you believe in someone, you have confidence in that person's ability to do the things that they say they will do or to be there for you. In the Merriam-Webster dictionary, on the other hand, believe means accepting something true, genuine, or real the ideas that we believe in. But the Merriam-Webster goes a little further and says, it is to have a firm or wholehearted religious conviction or persuasion to regard the existence of God as a fact. 
the Oxford Dictionary says that to accept, believe is to accept that something is true, especially without proof, to hold something as an opinion. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, dear God, may you use me as your vessel. And may these words that we speak today be acceptable, Lord, in your sight. For this is my prayer in your name. Amen. So when people ask, or when you ask people about what they believe in, or what they have believed in before, they give not just one answer most time. Some people give merely different answers. Some people might say, I believe that, you know, in this generation, this era that we are in, some people will say, I believe the COVID-19 pandemic was a hoax. You know, some people say, I believe in democracy. Or some people may say, oh, I believe in the unidentified flying objects, you know, like the UFOs. But somebody can believe that the COVID pandemic was a hoax. Or they can believe that the UFOs are real or they can believe that democracy or the democratic principles are just and beneficial for our community, for our society. But what does it mean when a Christian says, I believe in God, far more than when it is just an object of the COVID pandemic or it is democracy? We can believe People can believe in the UFOs without ever even seeing one of them. Some people can believe in democracy without even voting. In that case, belief is, an, is a matter of an intellect only. But the creed word, the word of God, that says creeds are statements of our basic beliefs about God. The term comes from the Latin word credo, meaning I believe, or I believe in God. It renders a Greek phrase by the writers of the New Testament, meaning literally, I am believing into God. That is to say, over and above our believing, we are believing certain truths about God, and we are living those truths. We are living in a relation of commitment to God, in trust, and in union. When I say I believe in God, I am professing my conviction that God has invited me and you into this commitment and declaring that I have accepted that invitation and you have accepted that invitation. As I was reading or preparing for this sermon, um, I've always been, you know, I try to read lots of um, spiritual articles and read different faiths. And I read a story about uh, Dr. Don, uh, Donald Miller. He is um, um, a president. He's, he's deceased now, but he's a Baptist. And he talked about one occasion when one of his church members called him one Saturday night. And the woman on the phone said, hello, pastor. Hello, Dr. 
uh, done. What do I believe? What would you say when your church member calls you and says, what do I believe? Would you think you've had them right? And that was the case with him. He thought he didn't hear it right. So he said again to the woman, what do you mean? I'm not sure if I heard what you said correctly. And the woman said again over the phone, what do I believe? As a church member, what do I believe? Do we know what we believe as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists? If you were in a crowd and somebody asked you, what do you believe? What is it? So the woman answered and said, I have just come from a party where we had a discussion and everybody was talking about what they believe. And one woman who was Jewish, she was very good. She talked about what she believed. She told us what they believe as Jewish. And another woman who was a Roman Catholic, she too talked about what she believed as a Roman Catholic. And in the group, there was a Christian scientist who also talked about what he believed, what they believed in their church. And then it was my turn, the woman said, and I was the only protestant in the group. And I didn't know what to say because I don't know what I believe. So Dr. Don Miller said, the woman must have, come, must have come into church on confusion of faith and not confession of faith. Unfortunately, there are lots of people in our church, in our Christian walk, who are suffering from confusion of faith and can't say exactly what they believe. It is easy to sympathize with such people in a world that is so confused and heterogeneous like ours. It is no wonder they feel lost. People feel lost and bewildered. Many things have happened. We've gone through the pandemic, the wars, the Ukraine war is going on. Um, most people have left church. So many things are happening in this present century where we are that have shaken everybody's confidence in what most of us, or most believers, once took for granted. So you want to ask yourself, when Jesus was in this world, the book of John is very interesting. It has lots of the parables. Jesus is talking to people in that book. And in John 12, 34, 37 to 50, it's a long verse, so I would encourage you to go read it for yourself. In this verse, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as a king. The people are very happy. They're joyous. They've been waiting for this king to come. They want to install him as a king, king of the Jews. They took palm branches. They spread on the, you know, on the way. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus is coming. The disciples are there. They know. They've seen all these miracles have happened. Everything that he has done up to this point has been pointing to him as the son of God, the son of man, that we should believe in him. But when you read that verse, you wonder, did they believe what they were proclaiming as the king, the son of man? How could people who had been with Jesus for so long, had seen everything that he had done, 
reject him. And in this passage, Jesus goes on to say, to quote the Old Testament of prophet Isaiah, to show that this unbelief that they have, that we have, is a part of God's sovereign plan in the gospel. Yet even here, Jesus himself holds out the hope of eternal life for all who believe. Not just the few who believe, but for all who believe in him. He says in verse 44 that then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. In verse 46, it says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So my question to you is, are you staying in darkness? In the chapter before that, in John 11, chapter 25, we read a very interesting story of Lazarus. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Lazarus is sick in Bethany. Um, the sisters sent for Jesus to come so that he can save Lazarus. But Jesus does not, does not come until some days after Lazarus has been uh, buried, has died and has been buried. So when he comes to Bethany, Martha, the sister to Lazarus, says to Jesus, he says, Lord, if you had come, my brother would have not died. And in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus answered and comforts her and gives her the assurance that her brother will live. And in that, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And Jesus asked Martha, do you believe? And right there, Martha says, Lord, I believe. Yes, I believe. You are the son and you are the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. So Martha says, I believe. But then we will see in a, in a verse later, does she really believe that Jesus can raise her brother, that very moment? Are we living in darkness because of our unbelief? A story is told of a little girl, a nine-year-old, and this little girl was very small, and that little girl was me. So as a nine-year-old, I went to a small primary school in our village. In those days, you know, we had the small school. Um, it wasn't a rich community. And in our school, during those days, we never had cleaners that were hired to clean the, the school. It was the work of the students to make sure you come to school early. The school had a roster for which classes to clean the classes and the compound. And after that, then you would go to start your class session. On those days, in my time, the school was divided to two there was the lower primary and the upper primary. The lower primary started from standard one to standard four. The upper primary was standard five to eight. And I know that every school had what we called those days a class prefect or a class monitor. And this is somebody who was tasked to make sure that the class students were quiet. That was your responsibility. Students reported to their activities where they were supposed to be according to the school um, schedule. And if something went wrong, the 
headmaster, we used to call them the headmaster then, not the principal, you will be responsible. So in my class as a small nine-year-old who had no leadership skills, that year in year uh, standard four, I was elected the class monitor. And everybody knew. I was a very little girl. I had a very tiny stature. And so the bigger kids used to take, think that I would not be, you know, strict, but I was. They soon learned very quickly that this little girl was not a joke. So when I gave instructions, if you didn't do it, your next stop was at the headmaster's office. And nobody wanted to go there because, you know, in my days, if you went to the headmaster's office and the headmaster calls your parents, you are in a big trouble. Because when my mother came to school that um, I am in the headmaster's office, she didn't even ask what was the problem. She whooped you right there in front of the school, in front of the headmaster. She didn't ask. So nobody wanted to go into the headmaster's office. So everybody in the class became very responsible. And everyone knew. And what happened is, in our school during those days, how our schools were made, it was this one big block that was built in an L-ship. And then the, it was divided into classes. And those days, our school, we didn't even have doors. There were no windows. And that's because the community would raise funds and build a certain portion of the building, and it will move on. So one class would house like 30 kids in there, and then the next class, and the next. And that's how they did it. And we were very happy for that standard at that time because you could find some schools around us that where kids were actually learning under the tree. So for us to be in a building, even though there were no windows, there were no doors, that was a pretty good situation for us because we were protected from the, um, the weather elements at that time. And how they did the floor is those who knows how you know building goes. In my country, they do what they call wet concrete. And so they will excavate the floor, they do all the hardcore stones and all that, and then they do concrete when it's wet and they pour it on the floor and it's leveled. And so once it's leveled, it's left, they cure it for a couple of days or weeks when they're pouring water on it and so it becomes dry. And that was it. It wasn't plastered smoothly. And we were happy once the building is up, they would plan for another fundraising to start plastering the building. But I can't remember if my school, I don't, my school was never plastered until I finished Standard 8 because there was other pressing issues. So, what happens to this floor is that after a certain time, when students walk on it, it's because it's cement and, and, and little gravel that are put together, it starts fraying out. It starts to remove some small particles of dust that is cement dust. And this dust is not really healthy. So what you do to make sure that this floor is clean, you pour water on it, and then after you pour the water, then you sweep it. And that means the dust will settle down, and then now students can be there. So in my four, year four, I decided that I was going to be responsible to clean our class the following year. That means I needed to have water to bring to school because we didn't have running water. We did not have any borehole in our school. So everything that you did with water, you had to bring it from home. And we didn't have brooms or mop. That floor is not supposed to be mopped because it is rough. So you just pour water on it. So I didn't have a broom. So after Standard 3, when we closed in December, I went home and I told my mom, Mom, 
I have decided that next year I'm going to clean the classroom. Just sweep it before people start so that the class is clean. And my mom looked at me and said, mm-hmm, you go ahead. She didn't say anything after that because she knew the challenges that I would go through. Mothers bless them. They know that no, the, the request for help is going to come right back at them when you are stuck. So we finished that December holiday. The next school year started. I was in class four. And so I was very excited with this project that I put my mind on. I programmed myself how I'm going to do it. But I didn't think of the challenges that we had because I came from my, my area is a very dry area. And we didn't have running water, which means if I was to get water to go to school with, I had to go fetch the water, bring it home, and the following day, carry it to school. Mind you, we were 10 children in our house, 10 of us. So we depended on the rainy season, which was January to around uh, March, April. And then we would harvest water during those days, but we were not rich. We didn't have big tanks to store water. We just could, just little storage. And by the end of the rainy season, the water that we had harvested during the rainy season will last for about two months or three months. And we were 10 children. That means you have to bath, you have to cook, you have to wash clothes. So we used a lot of water those days. So when we started the, the term, I told my mom, so how am I going to get water to take to school? And she said, well, did you not think about that? So in my little mind, I said, okay, I'll, when I go, what we used to do when you come back from school, you run during the, the dry season, you run to the pond, you fetch the water, twice, that was the rule in my house, you bring it back, and then you bath, you get your dinner, and you do your school homework. So I thought, okay, if I go to get water, I fetch it twice with a 10-liter jerry can, I bring it home, five of it I'm going to be bathing with myself, and then five I carry to school, but this is clean water that should be used for cooking, so how am I going to carry it to go pour it on the floor? My mom looked at me and said, there's other ways you can get water. So that night when I went to bed, and the following day I woke up and I told my mom, you know what, I know what we're going to do, and you're going to help me. What we're going to do is every day, because everybody had their roster for washing the plates, the first water we use for washing plate, we'll throw it out, but the second water we use for rinsing, I'm going to collect that water. Keep it in a jerry can, and that's the water I will use to go to school. And when we wash our clothes in, uh, on, 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 on the, over the weekend, I will do the same thing. And that was a good idea. So I had water every day from January to December. And so every day I would go to school, but it was brutal because I had to wake up so early in the morning and I couldn't wake up myself. It was my mother who had to wake me up. And I had to be in school by 7 a.m. in the morning so that I could clean the classroom and get everything ready. By 7.30, students started coming and the school had a roster for school chores. I was not exempted from that. So I had double chores. I had to do the, the work for the class, then I have to do the regular work for the school before I can go to class. And so it was, it was stressful. But I was so happy, I didn't even think of it as stress. Because it's something that I had programmed in my mind and I wanted to do it. So time went by and my headmaster, God bless his soul, he's deceased now. He used to come to school early enough, but I, we did not, I did not notice that he was coming every day. We knew a student that he would come every, um, to school early to prepare for the, you know, for the day. But he took notice of what I was doing. And so time went by, term after term, term one, term two, term three, 
and it was it became enjoyable just because I wasn't doing it myself, but I had people who were helping me. And my mother was there, my rock. She's 92 now, struggling with health. But my headmaster at the end of Standard 4, when we had our closing day, he singled me out and called me and said, you have been doing a great job. And I did not know that he had been taking record of my work. And because I came from a, you know, a family was not rich, things didn't come by easily. School uniform for 10 children, who parents know how children grow very fast. Um, term one, the second term, they've outgrown their uniform, you need to buy another one. So 10 of us to buy uniform every other day or every other term was not a easy thing for my family. So my headmaster and the school decided to gift me with uniform and shoes and a stack of exercise books for the next four years of my primary education. That was a blessing. But this did not happen just by chance. This happened because I had a purpose. I programmed myself with the help of other people around me and made my mind to believe that I could do what I said I was going to do. And I, I knew that my mother was going to support me, so that belief was in me. So what happens when we no longer believe anything and can't act from a center of spiritual conviction or spiritual certainty. The way our forebearers did, Helen G. White, we ref refer to her many times. What happens if we don't have that, if we lose that sense of spiritual direction or spiritual certainty? We are like globules and quicksilver, raising this way and that way every now and then with nothing to steady us or to guide us. As I keep reading, I came across a very convincing explanation. And this is from somebody who is not even um, uh, Christian. And what he says, his name is Shad Hamster. And he's a, a not very religious, but he's a merchant of self-confidence. And he asked the most basic thing that can be described about a person. What is it? It is the person's behavior. Whatever one can do or whatever one can be, what can be said about a person, the behavior remains the most obvious. But what determines somebody's behavior? It is the feelings. Is it what we feel that determines our behavior? The person behaves the way they do or the way he does or she because of the way he or she feels. And what controls a person's feeling? It is our attitude. If the person has an optimistic attitude, they will be happy and upbeat and be able to accomplish what they set to do. And we all know when somebody is pessimistic and unhappy, the result is different. They have a negative feeling, they are unhappy, and so pessimism is not the way to go. But there is something else that he says is very important that lies behind our attitudes and that thing is our beliefs. What we believe in. What people believe controls their attitude, controls their feelings as well. 
If they believe or if we believe that there is a God and that God is working for our good, our attitude will be more positive than if we believe everything is mechanistic and there is no moral center in our lives. If we do not know what to believe, in other words, if our belief centers have simply collapsed from the pressures of suffering and scientific preoccupations and intellectual relativism, then we have nothing with which to control our attitudes and our feelings and behaviors. Our human consciousness will drift without a rider on this vast sea of meaninglessness. We are what we believe. When you read the Bible, the word believe or phrases in the Bible that has the word believe appears about 250 times. And most of those phrases comes from the New Testament. And in the New Testament, John, the book of John, has the most number of appearances of the word believe. In John, it appears about 100 times. This is significant. Why would John write so much about belief? In John 35, in John 6 verse 35, Jesus talked about him being the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never go hungry. And whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. And again, when we go back to John 11, verse 40, we find a situation when we were reading earlier on, Jesus told Martha, if you believe, your brother will live. If you believe in me, your brother will live. Do you believe? And Martha answered, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. But then when Jesus comes to verse 40, and he asked to be taken to where Lazarus was buried, and he requests for the stone to be rolled out, and Martha is the first person to say, Lord, he's been dead four days. He must have a bad order now. We should not roll the stone out. And here Jesus is reminding Martha again and Jesus says Martha if you believe then you will see the glory of God and Martha believes and in that chapter very powerful Jesus calls Lazarus. Lazarus comes out and he's raised from the dead. And we see in every element of Jesus' parables, the talk, the teachings that he had with people, many times he talks about believing in him. He talks about believing in his miracles. He talks about encouraging us to believe that he is the son of man. He is the God. That if we believe in him, we will have eternal life. And as we go along in John chapter um, 14, we find the most powerful comfort that Jesus gives to his disciples. In John chapter 14, 
Jesus talks to his disciples. And that is from verse 1 to verse 4. And we all know this verse. It's a very common verse that we talk about it all the time. And in this verse, Jesus is comforting his disciples and he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in me. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going, to, I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, and it, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. So brothers and sisters, what do you believe? Do we know what we believe? Have you ever asked yourself, really, as a Seventh-day Adventist, as a child of God, as a Christian, what do you believe? Can you articulate that? This is my belief. As we see many times in the New Testament and, and all through the Bible, you know, the youth are doing um, the children of Israelites' journey throughout the wilderness from Egypt all the way until they um, enter into Canaan. And in many times we see episodes where they grumble and things that God has done to them, they forget. And we are no exception to that. God has done so much for us in our lives. But do we believe? Do we see these ones? Do we see everything that God has done to us when something hard comes our way? Or do we just forget as things do happen? All around us, we see God's creation speak of God's power. We see everything around us talk or say about the glory of God. But do we believe that? In a very powerful psalm, Psalm 19, as Kipruto prepares to give us the closing song. In the book of Psalm, chapter 19, It is so powerful. That we see God's creation talk about his existence. And in verse 1 in Psalm chapter 19. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voices goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. God's glory is manifested in his creation. The creation around us 
calls about God's glory and remind us that God is great and God is our Father. So what do you believe? May God bless you.
May we all rise for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to the close of our service, our prayer this afternoon is to enlighten our hearts and impress upon us, Lord, so that we can know what we believe in. So we can know for sure and be firmly rooted in your word. For you have said we need to believe in you. Thank you for this moment. Be with us as we leave this place. And may we be changed more than when we came in. Lead us, Lord, throughout the week. And guide us until you bring us back again to praise you and give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.